You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Thanks, Mike, and thanks everyone else for your prayers and your encouragement. And uh, I hope uh, you've been able to uh, have a read of John chapter 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3 because we will be doing a refresher this morning. It's been um, since February, I think it was, when we were in John. So, uh, we got into the first half of chapter 3 before I felt it was we needed to address a couple of other things. We got into the spiritual disciplines primarily. That took most of the next several months with um, Mike and Harley and various others in that time chipping in with a few other preachers um, and also one or a couple just recently on generous giving and the state of the church finances. But now I think it's time we got back into John's Gospel. And because it's been so long, I think we probably need a refresher on what we've covered so far. So we go very quickly, we'll just go over the story so you can be reminded of the many things we've already looked at. It starts off, John chapter 1, verse 1. The Gospel starts by introducing us to a character that John calls the Word. And the Word, this character, predates creation and he created everything that exists. The next character to appear on the scene, verse 6, is John the Baptist, who was sent to bear witness to the Word. And then in verse 9 it tells us that the Word came to bring light, but even his own people rejected him. In verse 12 though, there are some who didn't reject him. Those who received him also received the right to become children of God. Verse 14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among men. The Word lived on earth amongst humanity, bringing both grace and truth and revealing God to us. Verse 19, the Pharisees wanted to know just where John the Baptist fit into the scene, so they sent a team to him to find out. He denied being the Christ. He denied being Elijah. He denied being the prophet. But he he claimed to be one preparing the way of the Lord. Then in verse 29, the next, next day, John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says that this is the reason he was baptising, to make this Lamb known as the Son of God. Verse 35, then the next day, John spots Jesus again and immediately announces that he is the Lamb of God. Two of John's followers then turn to follow Jesus. One of them was Andrew, who immediately went and found his brother Simon Peter and brought him to Jesus as well. Then in verse 43, the next day again, so this appears to have happened over the course of about half a week so far, Jesus found Philip, who immediately rounds up his friend Nathaniel, to come and meet Jesus, the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. Moses and the prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament or our Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael, he called him a true Israelite. 
one in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael declared Jesus to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. (coughs) Getting into chapter 2. On the third day, Jesus went to a wedding in Cana, where all the wine ran out. This was an embarrassing and potentially costly mistake on behalf of the groom's family, not just costly financially, but costly socially. Because to run out of wine before the feast had finished was a slap in the face for all your neighbours. But Jesus saves the day and reveals his glory by turning the water that's used for religious rituals, the washing of your hands, turning that into the best wine. Verse 12 in chapter 2, From there Jesus and his new followers go to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus finds the temple courts have been turned into a livestock market. If you've ever been to a livestock market, you know they're not quiet, peaceful, fragrant, as in fresh air places. They are noisy, they are smelly, and uh, a place that should have been filled with the sound of prayer and worship was instead filled with the noises and stench of livestock and filled with the greed and the corruption of the money changers and the merchants. Jesus was outraged. He made himself a whip of cords and he drove all the animals out with that whip and he tipped over the tables of the traders and scattered their money everywhere. And this reminded his followers of the scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, unsurprisingly the Jews demanded to know what right Jesus had to do that. Never mind that they should, have been, should never have permitted a market within the temple courts in the first place. And they should never have permitted the trading and the exploitation that was going on. But they demanded to know what right, Jesus, do you have to do this? And Jesus answers cryptically, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They naturally think that he's talking about the temple building itself, which had taken 46 years to build. How was he going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days? But Jesus, as we know, was really talking about his coming crucifixion and resurrection. His disciples at the time didn't understand what he was saying either. But when he was raised from the dead, they remembered this and it says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Chapter 2, verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem for the Passover Passover feast, many people heard his words and saw his miracles and believed in him. But Jesus knew how shallow their faith was because Jesus knew all men, it says. He knew how fickle they were. So he didn't trust himself to them in return. And in our original series, we got as far as the first half of chapter 3 we saw Nicodemus, a Pharisee, coming to Jesus in the night to find out more about him and to find out more about his claims. Jesus tells Nicodemus that his ancestry and his religion weren't going to get him into the kingdom of God. That must have been a shock for Nicodemus. (coughs) But instead he needed to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't really understand what Jesus is talking about, even though Nicodemus was one of the primary teachers of Israel in the day. Jesus actually says, 
You are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this. Nicodemus should have understood something of this, but he didn't. Harley preached an outstanding message on the first half of John chapter 3 back in January. It's number 34 if you want to go looking for it on the podcast. If you didn't hear it when you preached it, do yourself a favour and go back and have a listen. If you did hear it when you preached it the first time, do yourself a favour and go back and have a listen. It was an outstanding message. It's been said that John's Gospel is a pool that a toddler can wade in and a river that an elephant can swim in. We saw that when we were in John's Gospel last year and the beginning of this year. John is easy to read. He uses small words that even a child can read and make sense of. But underneath those words is a depth of theology that's almost impossible to plumb. We've seen that too. I've preached 20 odd sermons, I hope they weren't odd, 20 plus sermons on the first two chapters of John alone. You can read those chapters in under 15 minutes, even if you're a slow reader. But I've preached nearly 15 hours of messages on those two chapters and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of them. There is such depth in there. John's Gospel is profoundly deep, profoundly interesting and profoundly wonderful. John states the reason he wrote his gospel pretty clearly towards the end in John chapter 20 verse 31 where he writes, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John intends to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by showing us two important things about Jesus. In fact, they're probably the two most important things about Jesus. I'd probably go so far as to say that if you don't come to terms with these two facts about Jesus, you'll never understand who he is, why he came, what he did, and how you stand to benefit from his life, death and resurrection. They are absolutely foundational truths not just to knowing about Jesus, but to having saving faith, the type of believing that will give you life in his name. You may be able to misunderstand or misinterpret these truths and still be saved, because after all we know it's not our intellectual knowledge that saves us. That's pretty much what Jesus told Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel, but you need more than just your knowledge of of the scriptures to be saved. It's not our intellectual knowledge that saves us, but if you reject these two truths, I think salvation is a pipe dream for you. I think you are fooling yourself to say that I am a Christian, I am saved, if you reject these two truths. In fact, they're so important that John builds his whole gospel on the foundation of these two truths. And he begins by laying a foundation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. John makes no bones about it. About a quarter of the way through the chapter though, he then tells us that Jesus Christ is also man. 
both of these facts are necessary for salvation. If either of one of them wasn't true, there would be no possibility of salvation for any one of us. As I said, I don't mean to suggest that you need to understand how they can both be true and both be true at the same time if you're going to be saved, but I do mean to suggest you need to acknowledge that they are both true and believe that they are both true. But both of these truths have come under attack from various sources down through the centuries. John's opening statement in his Gospel establishes that Jesus Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him not anything was made that was made. John calls him the Word here in these opening verses but he makes it clear not very many verses later that the word is none other than Jesus Christ. And John deliberately connects Jesus Christ, the word, back to the original story of creation back in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John's connecting Jesus back to that. He's making it plain. The word was there at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was there with God. And not only was the Word present at the beginning, but the Word was also God. In fact, if you read the original Greek, it actually puts it, and God was the Word. It emphasises that Jesus Christ is the Word, is God just to make sure we get the point that the word, Jesus Christ, is not a created being. John tells us that all things were made through him and then he doubles down and emphasises it again. Without him was not anything made that was made. What's excluded? Everything was made. Nothing excluded. So that tells us then that Jesus Christ is the uncreated creator. Therefore, Jesus Christ must be God. In fact, John declares him to be so when he writes in verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I'm not sure if John could be much clearer or if John should need to be much clearer than that. It would seem to be fairly obvious to me. But as we work through this gospel, we'll see over and over again evidence that Jesus Christ is God. He knows what people are thinking and have been doing. Several places in the gospel we see that. And Nathaniel was the first of them. He knew what Nathaniel had been doing. He turns water into wine, chapter 2. He cures a nobleman's son from a distance in chapter 4. He cures the lame man by the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. He feeds 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish in chapter 6. He walks on water also in chapter 6. He cures a man born blind 
chapter 9. He raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. The great miracles aren't necessarily evidence that someone is God. There's plenty of examples in the scripture you read through the Old Testament of people, of people performing miracles and even raising someone from the dead. Uh, but they're not God. But Jesus backed up his miracles with his own claims to be God. As much as some groups might like to dispute that Jesus claimed to be God, his own people knew exactly what he was getting at when he said things like, I and the Father are one. In fact, they knew so certainly what Jesus was implying by that that they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, is not for a good work that we're going to stone you. Being a good moral teacher or a good example of a servant to the poor doesn't usually get you executed. Take note, anyone who would want to spout nonsense about Jesus just being a good man and a good teacher. Being a good man doesn't make people hate you and execute you. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, the Jews said, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. They knew exactly what Jesus was implying by this. As if that wasn't enough to get them fired up, there's all the I am statements that Jesus made in John's Gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And of course there's also the famous one where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. This angered the Jews so much that they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, it tells us in John chapter 8. This man, Jesus, the word, is either exceptionally arrogant (laughs) or he's extremely deluded or he is really who he claims to be. They're your only choices. His fellow Jews and especially the Pharisees knew exactly what his claims meant. They were the original ones to attract the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, his claim to be equal with God, to be God, was the main reason they sought to put him to death. They weren't confused about his claims to be God, even if many people today are. There's plenty of religions that claim to be Christian but reject his deity. The most prominent you know of, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They've been out in force quite a bit just lately, knocking on doors and standing on street corners. The Jehovah's Witnesses have altered John's Gospel right at the very start, lest anyone should suspect by the claims of John that Jesus Christ is God. They say the word was a God. But the Greek says God was the word. No bones about that one. 
Just in case you're wondering, the Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian denomination. They are not a Christian denomination. They are not your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ. Presbyterians, Baptists, Pentecostals, Lutherans, you name it. We've got a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses are not your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not be deceived or led astray by them. And neither is any other person who denies the deity of Jesus Christ. And of course, as I said, there's plenty today who denies deity by reducing him to merely a good man, a good teacher, a good example. It's what most of the world believes about Jesus Christ, assuming they believe he ever existed in the first place. But if he was just a nice guy who went around doing nice things for people, they would never have crucified him. And we would never have heard of him today either for that matter, let alone be trusting him for eternal life. Jesus Christ is much more than just a good man, although he was a good man, the only good man. He is God himself. And John intends us to know that, to believe it, and to put our trust in him for salvation. These are written, John says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The other thing that John wants us to understand so that we may believe and have eternal life is that Jesus Christ is not only God, but he is God manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ is also man, truly man, completely man. Now if you're one of the political, politically correct class, don't get upset and accuse me or accuse God of sexism and misogyny when I say that Jesus Christ is man. By that I mean simply that Jesus Christ is human. He took on human flesh and human nature without ever giving up his deity and he became man. The old Nicene Creed tells us he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And it goes on to say, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. Jesus Christ is fully God and he is fully man at the same time. Having said that, there are important theological reasons why Jesus Christ came as a man, as a male, not as a woman and not as gender fluid. But this isn't the time or the place to go into those. But there are important reasons why he came as a man. John very quickly in his Gospel establishes the humanity of Jesus Christ. He hints at it in John 1.11 where he says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then he makes it explicit in one of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. In fact, I think it might be possibly the most important sentence that's ever been written in history. The Word, the Creator God, became flesh and dwelt among us. I think that's probably the most important sentence ever written in history. If refusal to believe that Jesus Christ is truly God is heresy, there's an opposite heresy, equally wrong and equally damaging. And that is the heresy that Jesus Christ wasn't really human. 
This idea came about in various forms in the centuries to follow. For some it was the idea that Jesus Christ was real, wasn't real, but was an apparition. He was a ghost or something like that. John gives us plenty of examples of the humanity of Jesus in his Gospel. He had parents and brothers, it tells us in John chapter 2. He got weary in John 4. He referred to himself as a man in John chapter 8 and other people took him to be a man in John 9. He got angry and was deeply moved by the pain of others, John 11. He wept, also John 11. He got distressed, John 12 and 13. He got thirsty, John 19. He died, also John 19. And he could be touched after his death and his resurrection. He could be touched in John chapter 20. These are examples that Jesus Christ was truly man. And they're examples that come only from the Gospel of John. We haven't even cast our net any further than that. This is only in John's Gospel that we learn that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is man. We don't even need to look further in the Scriptures to find that out. The humanity of Christ is an issue that John confronts quite strongly in his letters later on in the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he starts his first letter saying, That which was from the beginning, who was from the beginning? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He goes on a bit further. I'll turn this off. Here we go. John chapter, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In his second letter, John tells us, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Yep. And then if we jump back to 1 John chapter 2 again, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The early church had to wrestle with the issue of whether Jesus Christ is God or is man or is both at the same time. Paul addressed it in his first letter to Timothy when he wrote, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, 
proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 He was manifested in the flesh. Paul's statement wouldn't be the last word on this subject though. In the centuries to follow, the church had to deal with plenty of teachings that rejected the doctrine of the deity of Christ. So in the early 4th century, a council of church leaders was convened in Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey, to deal with the issue, hopefully, forever. And the Nicene Creed declares, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. 1,700 years later, the JWs and others still teach that Jesus Christ is not God, but claim he is a created being. They claim he is the first created being, but created nonetheless. To them, he himself is created. And sadly, that tells us that the Nicene Creed wasn't successful in putting this issue to bed. But it's also evidence of the stubborn unwillingness of the human heart to accept the light that Christ and the Scriptures give us. The JWs go so far as to add to and alter the Bible to try and make it support their teachings. They're not the only ones that do that. They're just the best known that do it. But the word of God will stand against every attack. The word of God will never fail. The word of God will remain until Jesus comes again. No matter who tries to distort it and who attempts to alter it and attack it. The old Nicene Creed goes on to address the humanity of Christ as well. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will never end. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. You better make sure you're on the right side of that equation of whether Jesus is God and man because when he makes that judgment there's no coming back from it. Why does it all matter? Why is it important? John tells us in his Gospel a little bit about it in chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist, as you recall, was getting about his business of preparing the way for Jesus Christ and baptising people when he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Three of the most important verses in the Bible are contained in the first chapter of John. The first one, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. It tells us about the deity of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is human. And in this verse it tells us why he came. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can thank Adam way back in the Garden of Eden for the plight that we're in at the moment. When Adam ate the fruit in defiance of God's clear command, he plunged the world into sin. The consequences are not only physical deterioration and death, as bad as that is, but the consequence is much more important, much more severe, a spiritual death, separation from God. Adam was our representative. Our federal head is the theological term that's used. His sin determined our spiritual DNA, so to speak. Just as we might inherit our father's curly hair or our mother's brown eyes or our grandfather's heart condition, we've inherited Adam's sin condition. Our problem is, though, that God has set a standard of purity, holiness and behaviour that's beyond our capacity to achieve. Not only must we never sin from now on for the rest of our life, we must never sin in our past. And it's a bit too late to undo that. Even if we were able to live sin-free lives for the rest of our lives, we would not be able to change what we've done in the past. God must judge sin. God can't just wink and pretend he doesn't see it. That would make him an unjust judge and even us as humans can't abide an unjust judge. How many times have you seen news reports of people being let off with a slap on the wrist because the judge thinks, you're a nice person, I don't care that you've done all this stuff in the past, I'll let you off. And we're outraged by that, as we should be. That is an unjust judge. Should God be unjust? and just turn a blind eye to our sin? Of course not. But that gives us a problem, doesn't it? We want God to be a just judge because we want to see justice for sins committed against us. But what do we do with the sin that we've committed against others or against God? God must demand that sin be paid for. And God demands that the penalty for that sin is death. But if we die for our sin, our own sin, we're eternally separated from God. There's no way for us to absorb that infinite wrath and punishment that accompanies the penalty for sin. But the good news is that Jesus Christ can be our representative. Just as Adam was our representative in sin, Jesus Christ can be our representative, our federal head in the issue of dealing with sin. God's plan from before the creation of the world was to deal with our sin by entering into humanity, not as an apparition, not as a pretender, 
but as a real human. And as a real human, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't. Not only did Jesus never do wrong, Jesus always did right. Even if we were able to never do wrong from now on, would we always do right? Both were required. Theologically, they talk about the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. The passive obedience is never doing wrong. The active obedience is always doing right. We can't do that. We need someone to do that on our behalf. If Jesus was only a man, if he was only a creating created being, he could be saved because of his own perfect holy life. But it would be of no benefit to anyone else. But because he is also God, he was able to absorb the infinite wrath of God against sin in his body on our behalf. That's what the cross is all about. By absorbing God's wrath on the cross, by dying, he is able to turn away God's wrath from us. It's what the Bible and theology calls propitiation, a big word. But it might be my favourite word in all of the Bible, propitiation. Propitiation is the act of Jesus Christ as our representative, as our federal head, absorbing and exhausting the wrath of God against us. You need an infinite being to absorb infinite wrath. A mere human can't do that. And by exhausting the infinite wrath against us, he's made it possible for God to be merciful to us, to be favourable towards us, to bless us, to save us. Propitiation is a beautiful, beautiful word and concept. On that brutal cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ took our sin upon his shoulders. As Adam was our representative in the act of sin, Jesus is our representative in the punishment of sin. Our sin is imputed to him, the Bible says, the penalty was reckoned to him as if he, the only perfect man who ever lived, as if he had committed our sins. And in exchange, his righteousness, the perfect life of obedience that he lived, is imputed, is reckoned to us as if we had lived that perfect life ourselves, as if we had never sinned as if we had always done right. His perfect righteousness is imputed to us because he is our representative before God. Someone has called this the great exchange. My sin for his righteousness. His righteousness for my sin. The great exchange. You won't get a better deal than that in all eternity but he would not have been able to do that if he were not also God. Our salvation, your salvation, my salvation, depend on Jesus Christ being both God 
and man at the same time. True God, true man. These two issues, the deity of Jesus Christ and the humanity of Jesus Christ, are two foundation stones of John's Gospel. Get either of these wrong or worse, reject either one of these and you won't get the message of the Gospel. You won't get the message of salvation. And you run the very real risk of eternal condemnation because your rejection of the Son is rejection of the Father also. John writes at the conclusion of his Gospel, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did much, much more than John records in this Gospel, or in any of the Gospels for that matter. John didn't set out to write a comprehensive biography of Jesus Christ. He chose carefully certain events, certain miracles, certain conversations, certain confrontations to make his point that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing, you and I might have life in his name. Must you have a deep knowledge and understanding that Jesus is both God and man at the same time to have eternal life? I've already said no, you don't need to have understanding of it. The message of the gospel, the good news of salvation from sin and the gift of eternal life is not dependent on our intellectual knowledge. In fact, sometimes our intellectual knowledge can hurt us, it can get in the way, it can make us cynical. But this message, this good news is for everyone, for all who would believe. Your IQ doesn't matter. Your race doesn't matter. Your nationality counts for nothing. Your gender is not a barrier and neither is your age. For he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of certain people who meet a certain standard. So many people are shouting for inclusion nowadays. There's no message more inclusive than the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ for all who would believe. No exceptions, all who would believe. If you don't want to believe in him, you can hardly complain about the gospel being exclusive. It's your choice not to believe in him. The offer is for all, without exception. Do you believe? That's the question for each of us. Do you believe? Have you put your trust in him? Faith is not believing something that we know is not true. As I think some little kid wrote on an essay once, believing something we know is not true. Faith in Christ is believing in a real person who really lived and lives still, who did real things, and spoke real messages to real people in real history. Jesus Christ is real. And he can be relied upon to be exactly who he, can, he claims to be and to do exactly what he promised to do. And he promised 
that if we will believe in him, if we will come to him in faith, that he will take away our sin and grant us eternal life. The great exchange. What more could we ask for than that? Let's close in prayer. Father, this great exchange, this propitiation that Jesus was able to accomplish on our behalf, this taking away of the sin that we've inherited from Adam and replacing with the righteousness of Jesus Christ is overwhelming to us, Lord. Lord we receive it we receive Jesus Christ Lord we receive him we receive the right to become children of God we receive the right to worship him in spirit and in truth we receive the right to call him both Lord and God the perfect man the Holy God, the one we've sung about this morning and lifted our voices in worship to, the Word, the Lamb, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this week if there are any doubts in our hearts, in our minds about whether Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, you will reveal it in your word to us, Lord. Show us truth. Set us free by truth, Lord. Lord, I pray this, this coming week that our hearts will be more firmly fixed on Jesus Christ than ever before. Lord, as we read in Isaiah 6 this morning, the angel touched Isaiah's lips and took away his guilt and atoned for his sin by that burning coal. Thank you, Lord, that you have done that work in us. You've taken away our guilt and shame. You've taken away our unclean lips. You've taken off the filthy robes of righteousness of our own that we wore and given us the gleaming, clean, pure robe of righteousness of Christ. Lord, would you make us this week so grateful for that and eternally grateful for that. And would you give us opportunity, Lord, this week to bring that message to others. Would you open doors, Lord? to tell others the good news of salvation for all who would believe, without exception, all who would believe. Would you go before us like John went before Jesus to prepare the way? Would you go before us, Holy Spirit, and prepare hearts to receive truth, to receive him? And we pray this in his precious his mighty and his wonderful name, the name of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Lamb of God, Son of Man, the ever-living one, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray and we worship. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.